Hello all and welcome to the latest episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast where each week myself Paul, the creator and true crime enthusiast of the show's title looks at some of the more obscure and forgotten cases that the UK and Ireland has in its dark history. I thank you very much for all joining me today and I hope that you're all well and good as the episode finds you. So this week brings a change from the episode that I'd originally planned, as the research for the planned case proper overran against real life and when I can record and edit the show. So I've decided to release one of the show Patreon episodes as this week's episode, rather than skip a week. I mean, these things do happen, don't they? But on the plus side of this, I have managed to research so much usable material now that the planned single episode has now become a two-parter and I'd always strive for detail and a more comfortable and manageable narrative over a number of parts rather than try and remake the bloody Godfather trilogy over a podcast episode. So the first part of that will be coming next week instead. The case that I've opted to use instead for this week then is a quite recent Patreon episode of the show that takes place on the east coast of the UK in the city of Lincoln in the early 1990s. It's a bit of a unique case and it's a proper find and it gives a fascinating glimpse into how the most minuscule piece of evidence can be the crucial factor that cracks a case. And it's a tale that I hope you find interesting and informative. Normal service will be resumed next week, I promise folks. But in the meantime, the episode this week contains descriptions of crimes, the details of which some listeners may find disturbing or offensive. So discretion is advised as always. With that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiasts this week in a change from the scheduled episode, we look back at the case of the Lincoln Axe Murders. Lincoln is a city in the East Midlands and the county town of Lincolnshire. It's home to what was for more than 200 years until the middle of the 16th century the world's tallest building, Lincoln Cathedral. It's also where my dad lives, and it was also the city that 75-year-old farmer Fred Maltby had called home all of his life, who since 1951 had lived in a small farmhouse cottage at number 292 in the Brant Road area of the city. Fred had spent his working life running a small holding from this land, owning about 15 acres, but by 1991 he rented most of this land out as paddocks. He did retain a small immediate portion of the land for his day-to-day use and it was from here that he made a meagre living selling chopped firewood and homegrown vegetables from a sizeable greenhouse that he kept on the property. Having never married or had any children, Fred was a bit of a reclusive figure and although he was described as always being pleasant and cheerful, he wasn't very well known outside of the immediate community near to where he lived, generally keeping to himself. He would venture into the local shop opposite where he lived a couple of times each day to buy groceries and the morning and evening newspapers, but the rest of his days were either spent working in his greenhouse, chopping wood, or having chats with his neighbour of 20 years, garage mechanic Bill Shockley. The rest of the time, as we've said, Fred wasn't very outgoing. He hardly knew anybody. He spent the majority of the nights in the house alone watching television, occasionally punctuated by an evening stroll. So there seemed to be absolutely no reason whatsoever why anyone would want to kill a harmless reclusive old farmer like Fred. But as murder detectives examined his corpse at the cottage where he lived on the afternoon of the 2nd of October 1991, it was clear that somebody had wanted him very dead indeed. A neighbour of Fred's had called that afternoon to purchase some firewood from him and had noticed the downstairs curtains still unusually drawn and the door unlocked. After no response from repeated calling, his friend had entered the cottage. There were the remains of a meal on the kitchen table, but no sign of Fred, so the friend had wandered through into the downstairs living room. At first glance on entering the room, it appeared as though Fred had simply dozed off in his favourite armchair The fire was on, the television was on, and he was sat in his usual position how he spent his evenings when he finished his working day, still dressed completely in his habitual blue boiler suit. But a closer look revealed the true and full horror of the situation. The chair Fred was sat in was saturated with a large amount of blood staining, blood that had spilled from four savage gashes in his head, which had practically shattered it and caused horrendous visible wounds. 
The walls and ceiling nearby were also covered in his blood. Panicking and horrified, the friend immediately called police. When they arrived, police were appalled at the level of violence against an elderly man. They determined that someone had attacked and killed Fred as he sat in his chair, smashing his head in and splitting open his skull with at least four savage blows from what was revealed later to be an axe. The murder weapon was confirmed as being this because on a cushion on the sofa adjacent to the armchair was the perfect silhouette of an axe head marked out in bloodstaining where the killer had placed the weapon down. It also appeared to have been a few hours since the murder because the remains of the meal on the kitchen table were from the previous evening. The electric bar fire was still on in the front room and Fred's body was close enough to it that his legs had been quite severely burnt. So Fred lived alone, worked his small holding alone, and although he'd only had a limited number of acquaintances, those who did know him in the area liked him immensely. As far as anybody knew, Fred had very little to his name, and certainly nothing readily worth stealing. The 15-acre small holding that he'd owned and worked since his childhood gave him a manageable living, but it certainly yielded no great fortune to him. But Detective Superintendent Stuart Clifton, the senior investigating officer leading the hunt, knew from previous experience that it's often the case where reclusive elderly people such as Fred become the subject of local rumour and hearsay in which they have supposed fortunes hidden away under floorboards or mattresses in the bedroom or shut in biscuit tins and kept in the loft. Now these rumours are more often than not untrue, but if they reach the ears of the wrong people, then it can often lead to burglary which could indeed lead to torture and violence when this hidden fortune doesn't materialise. There's some very sick, very nasty people out there, aren't there? So was this what had happened here? It was a real possibility. Although Fred lived a frugal life, three years before, a property development company had made an offer to buy his land from him for the sum of half a million pounds. The offer wasn't accepted by Fred at the time, and the property boom had collapsed soon afterwards, so he continued living his simple existence working his small holding. But it may have been this that led someone to think that old Fred Maltby was worth a lot more than he actually was. Or had Fred known his killer, and that was the reason he needed to be silenced. But then what was the reason for such an orgy of violence? Detective Superintendent Clifton's murder squad set about tracking down everyone who'd had any contact with the elderly farmer, which wasn't too difficult a job. As we've said, Fred lived and worked alone, he'd never married and had no relatives except an elderly sister and very few close friends. He'd also never employed anyone on a permanent basis to help him run his small holding. There were no witnesses, no forensic evidence and very few clues to go on. Although the house was in disarray, the only thing that seemed to be missing from the scene was a battered brown leather wallet that Fred carried with him but even this would have only contained a few pounds. The one thing known for definite was that it had been an axe that had killed him. The pattern of wounds was consistent with an axe, there was a blood-stained imprint on the cushion, and there was a chopping block at the farm outside the back door. But the axe Fred used to chop firewood wasn't anywhere to be found, whereas it would, of course, been with the block. A search of his home, the grounds and land, plus a search of the riverbed nearby and the local area, all failed to find the murder weapon. Had Fred been killed with his own axe, then his, that his killer had picked up at the scene while creeping outside on that dark night, and then then taken it away, it seemed very likely. The murder made front page news in the local Lincolnshire newspapers and was covered in depth on local TV and radio bulletins. I mean, it's understandable, isn't it? An axe murder would horrify the community and be a major talking point, wouldn't it? Press appeals for witnesses or anyone who could give information about Fred to come forward were made. And in December 1991, just two months after the murder, a reconstruction was even featured on good old Crime Watch UK. The reconstruction is available through YouTube if anyone's interested in watching it. Thanks very much to that legend of a user who uploads all sorts of crime watch called Redcard74. Pure legend. The reconstruction portrayed everything that was known about Fred's movements on the night that he died, including the last known sighting of him. 
walking towards his front gate at about 9pm the previous evening. Although about 120 calls were made to the studio following the reconstruction, nothing of real help that would advance the investigation was received. Just a couple of months after the murder, by the beginning of 1992, investigators had reached a bit of a dead end. Every possible lead had been followed up and exhausted, and manpower had to be redirected, leaving a skeleton staff of investigators looking for Fred's killer. As we've said many times before on the show, crime unfortunately doesn't wait around for police to be ready and have nothing else on to do, does it? Meanwhile, the remaining investigators on the case were left waiting for further information to come in, or a sudden break in the case. That break came at the end of January 1992, less than four months after Fred's murder. Detective Superintendent Clifton received a telephone call on the morning of Wednesday the 29th of January 1992, telling him that a body had been found on the southern outskirts of Lincoln. It was at an address on the high street there, a licensed betting office named Joe Rylett of Lincoln Bookmakers, and the dead man was none other than the proprietor himself, 61-year-old Joseph Joe Rylett. He'd been discovered that morning by his son, who later said, I went in to open the back door and the door wouldn't open properly. I managed to get my head through the gap in the door and I saw my father lying on the floor. I didn't know what state he was in, so rather than push past and potentially hurt him, I went around to the front of the shop and let myself in that way. There was a small stepladder that we used for putting away historical betting slips that was lying on the floor and my initial reaction was, he's fallen off and hit his head on the corner of the table or the wall. Joe's son called police in an ambulance, and when they arrived, in the office at the rear of the shop premises, the bookmaker lay dead on the floor. The scene was ransacked, and a heavy safe door lay wide open, with the keys still hanging in it. Nearly £3,700 was found to be missing from the scene. It appeared that Joe Rylett had died as the result of a violent struggle with an intruder. The scene was awash with blood, and upon close inspection, his head was found to have been caved in by a series of vicious blows, at least eight in total, from a heavy, sharp instrument. For the second time in just under four months, Detective Superintendent Clifton found himself looking at the scene of a savage murder. It was just three and a half miles from the scene of Fred Maltby's killing, and one glance to the wounds of Joe Rylett were enough to convince Clifton of one thing. Only an axe could have caused catastrophic wounds such as that. Now the investigation into the murder of Joe Rylett was almost the complete opposite as to that into Fred Maltby's murder in possible leads. Because whereas the elderly farmer hadn't seemed to know anybody, it seemed that 61-year-old Joe knew half of Lincolnshire. Rylett was a wealthy independent bookmaker who'd amassed a small fortune for many years spent working in the trade. He was a familiar figure at the racetracks of the East Midlands, and he was well known around Lincoln for living the high life, quite a familiar face around the more upmarket clubs and restaurants of the area. And there was more to him than met the eye in several ways, and each of these could have provided a possible motive for his murder. For a start, Joe Ryler enjoyed the company of the ladies, and he didn't seem to mind if they were attached or not. He had a string of girlfriends, and detectives found an address book that contained the names and telephone numbers of many of these, many of whom were also married. Superintendent Clifton had to consider that his death, which appeared to have been motivated by robbery, may actually have been prompted by jealousy. Joe Rylett had been at the bookies late that Tuesday evening. He was there at least until 8.25pm as he'd called one of his lady friends from there at that time. So had one of these cuckolded husbands paid Joe Rylett a visit that Tuesday evening to have a bit of a go at him about putting it about and found him cashing up the day's takings? A row may have spilled into murder and the robbery may have been opportunism, nothing more or it may even have been a deliberate ploy to try and throw police off the scent of the killer. There was also another side of Rylett that could have brought about his death. He was a fence. The bookie had a reputation for mixing with the criminal element of Lincoln, and he was known as a handler of stolen goods. A stolen video recorder was found at the premises during a search which highlighted this. 
Was it someone from this area of the criminal underworld who killed him in a row over stolen goods or the money for them? Then police discovered that he was also a loan shark, giving loans of varying sums of money to the sort of people who normal banks and finance companies wouldn't touch with a barge pole. Rylett's rates of interest on these loans were reputed to be correspondingly high, according to some sources, although this is unsubstantiated, and if someone fell behind with their repayments, well, this rate would just go up. Or whatever else Rylett may do, it wasn't exactly clear. I personally doubt myself that it was the sit down and let's have a bit of a chat about it kind of approach really, but then this is of course speculation. Perhaps this time someone could not or would not pay back their loan, not wanting to perhaps. One thing seemed certain, Rylett mixed with wrongans shall we say, and if you do business with them then it's a high risk kind of circle to move in and you may just get your fingers burnt. Clifton got his team busy asking around amongst the network of police informants, hoping that the criminal grapevine may give the investigating team some hint of who Rylett's killer could possibly be. The motive seemed very clear-cut. I mean, the door at the large safe at the back of the shop was wide open, and the contents of a cash float and the till receipts lay strewn across the floor. Nearly £3,700 was missing from the shop, so robbery clear as day. But as Detective Superintendent Clifton looked at the body where it lay, he took in the blood-spattered walls and the obvious levels of savage violence that had been inflicted. Eight savage, powerful blows. It was a disturbing crime scene to be at, the second that the area had seen in just a few weeks, and the urgency to catch the killer before they struck for a third time was paramount. At the mortuary, measurements of the wounds to Joe Rylett's head were taken. There were eight savage deep wounds in total, the biggest being some seven centimetres in length. The wounds had been inflicted from several different angles with ever-increasing force, suggesting that the initial blow had felled Rylett and then the killer had attacked him in an orgy of violence while he lay gravely wounded on the floor. An orgy of violence was an understatement. Rylett's skull had been smashed to pieces and there were several massive and catastrophic brain injuries. A careful comparison was made between these wounds and the wounds inflicted upon Fred Maltby three months earlier, and this showed several startling similarities in the shape and dimensions of the cutting edge of the weapon used. It was undoubtedly an axe. The same killer had struck again with the same weapon. At the laboratories, scientists probing the massive head wounds to Rylett also made a remarkable discovery. There were tiny foreign particles present in the wounds and flesh and bone fragments. These were impossible to see with the naked eye, but under a high-resolution microscope, the foreign particles were identified as paint fragments. The scientists told Detective Superintendent Clifton that these would have been transferred to the wounds from the head of the axe which was all well and good if police had had the weapon in their possession to say, yes, scientists, you're right there, they are indeed. But as with the murder of Fred Maltby, the killer had removed the weapon from the scene and police had nothing. It had not been dropped at the shop after Rylett's murder. All scientists could tell police was that the particles of paint were of a type that contained zinc in its composition. So Clifton now considered his options. Was it possible to trace the source of this paint? That seems even saying it a massive needle in a haystack and a total long shot, but he decided to go with it. He took the minuscule sample to the nation's leading authority in paint technology, the British Paint Research Foundation at Teddington in West London. Which, if anyone who works there is possibly listening, I'm sorry, but it sounds one of the most boring places I've ever heard of to work. It must be like watching paint dry to work there. Bad, awful, terrible gag, I know. By checking the composition of the paint that had been found in Joe Rylett's wounds, it may be able to be discovered from this where it was manufactured. So if you get that, from there it was fair to reason that it may be possible to trace where it had been sold, and this trail may eventually lead to the killer. It was, as we've said, a massive long shot, but in the absence of any other decent information, the investigation was at a bit of a standstill. 
A few days later, Clifton got a response from the British Paint Research Foundation and the news wasn't great. The sample that had been taken from the scalp of Joe Rylott was too small to provide anything conclusive about its manufacture. They'd suggested another paint research facility, this time in Germany, who may be able to come up with something clearer from the sample. As Clifton was debating as to whether this was indeed just a long shot and he couldn't justify the expense and manpower needed to go to Germany to check this out, he received news that jolted the investigation. Bolton Park is a Grade 2 listed public park in southwest Lincoln, and in April 1992 a group of teenage boys had been boating on the lake there. The boys had scrambled onto a small island in the lake not too far from the shore, looking for birds' nests amongst the foliage there, and as they'd searched amongst the reeds and brambles, they discovered something that definitely didn't belong on the island. An axe. News of the two axe murders had of course been prominent in the media, and each of the boys had read and heard the appeals for information concerning the murders, so they were understandably excited by what they'd found especially because it appeared, even from a glance, to have blood staining on it. They hurriedly made their way back to shore and took their find to the nearest police station. Pictures of the find, a sizeable wooden-handled firewood axe, were published in the local press with an appeal for anybody who recognised it to come forward with their information. Meanwhile, the axe was soon under the microscope at the police laboratories, and the spirits of the investigating team soared when the results of the tests came back. The head of the weapon was found to fit the shape of the bloody imprint that had been left on the cushion at the scene of Fred Maltby's murder, and despite being left out in the elements for who knows how long, which had eliminated any fingerprints that could possibly be lifted from the weapon, there were still minute traces of blood found upon the axe head. These were found to be a perfect match for Joe Rylett's blood. The blade also matched perfectly the grooves and dashes in the chopping block found at Fred Maltby's farm. The block with the axe, which would always have been with it, missing from it. Police now had the murder weapon, but the axe head provided more clues. There were relatively fresh traces of paint adhering to the head of the axe, and underneath this paint, traces of blood were found. Now it couldn't definitively be proven to be Fred Maltby's blood, but this was considered likely to be. If Rylett's blood was on top of the paint, then the blood underneath the paint wouldn't be his. Why would the killer strike someone a deadly blow, then stop and touch up the axe head with paint, let it nearly dry, and then whack the victim several times more? Why else would somebody paint an axe head anyway, apart from to cover up traces of a first murder? The larger paint samples now available meant that the search for the origin of the paint could begin again, so Detective Superintendent Clifton returned once again to the British Paint Research Foundation, this time with a larger sample for them to test. But again their results were disappointing. The analysts there told him that it was still impossible to identify the type of paint in its manufacture, even from the larger sample that he'd now brought them. But all was not lost, they did manage to provide something. The paint that the axe head had been coated with was grey primer paint with an unusual binding agent in it. It may be possible to identify the binding agent, which may in turn narrow down the search for the source of the paint. Trace that back to the UK then, possibly to Lincoln and Robert's your mother's brother and you have a real chance of making some progress. Detective Superintendent Clifton later said, we contacted the British Paint Research Association at Teddington in Middlesex. It took them three weeks to identify the binding agent in the paint as epoxyester D4 made in Essen in Germany. And they also noticed that the zinc had been reconstituted. It wasn't much of a lead, but we had little else, so we went for it. From Essen, we found the names of all the paint manufacturing companies which used epoxyester D4. So the binding agent's trade name was Epoxyester D4. And as far as the British Paint Research Facility, who must be the go-to people for paint sources, I would imagine, as far as they knew, it was only manufactured at this plant in Essen. The only other clue was that the zinc present in the paint hadn't been freshly manufactured. The zinc present in the paint source that had coated the axe head had been reconstituted 
it had been through a salvage and reconstitution process that may just help identify its origin. Now these did seem incredibly thin leads that you couldn't have got a fiver between. But the fact of the matter was, there was no other information coming from Lincoln. They'd done the usual door-to-door inquiries, the usual bog-standard murder investigation actions. But there were no strong suspects, no obvious connections found between the two murder victims. So Clifton decided once more to make a full-on hit at tracking down the source of this paint. Two members of the investigating team travelled to the chemical plant in Essen, armed with their samples, and the ever-efficient German workforce within moments had the information to hand that the team needed, a list of their customers that they dealt with that were involved in the manufacture of paint. There were about 11 of these companies in total, and they ranged all over Europe, in Germany, Belgium, France, and the Netherlands. The investigating team would have to contact each one in turn, working their way through the entire list. And the two key questions that had to be asked in each conversation, do you use the binding agent epoxyester D4 in the manufacture of any of your products? And do you use reconstituted zinc in the manufacture of any of the same? As they worked through the list, police began to get used to the answers no and no to these questions, as company after company came back and shot them down. And then a call to a firm based in the Netherlands was like a ray of sunshine. A Dutch manufacturer who dealt with the Essen plant confirmed to police that they did indeed use epoxyester D4 and reconstituted zinc in one of their products. The product it was used in was a special protective coating paint used mainly in industry, which was in turn sold all over the world. Asked if they had any importers based in the UK, the person on the other end of the phone spent what seemed like an eternity checking and then came back to detectives saying, Yes, we have just the one. The UK agents who received all of this paint were based in Wolverhampton in the West Midlands and Detective Superintendent Clifton sensed that they were onto a real viable lead here. With just the one distributor of the confirmed paint type in the country, they would keep records and sales invoices. It may even be possible to trace every can that they'd ever sold of it. Now this may still be a large list to work through, but it was a definitive source. The killer had used that very paint to coat the weapon used in a double murder in between the killings. So the troll began again, but this time police discovered that this search was a lot more focused now. The UK importer had sold its supplies of the paint between only a handful of companies that were scattered across the length and breadth of the UK. And one of these companies, would you believe it, was in the Lincoln area. It was a building supply company named Highcombe Forum Supplies, a firm based on the Westminster trading estate in the Lincolnshire suburb of Highcombe. They'd bought 36 tins of the paint. That's a fantastic hit, that or what, eh? Police were around to the firm faster than Gatwick, closing at the report of a drone to look through their records and to look closely at the workforce. A company with that very rare constituted primer paint in the area of two brutal murders that the murder weapon was found to contain traces of it on that was placed on it between the murders. Come on, the killer's got to be found from there, eh? The company in Lincoln who'd bought the imported paint still had a third of their purchase on the premises and were asked to check their sales records to find out where the remainder of the paint had gone. The records showed that the rest of their stock had been sold to a small engineering firm specialising in heat exchanger equipment which operated on the Westminster trading estate in Highcombe. It was a company employing nearly 80 people that was on the same industrial estate as Highcombe Forum Supplies. Detective Superintendent Clifton was now convinced that he and his team were getting very close to the killer of Fred Maltby and Joe Rylett, but he didn't want the killer to know just how close police were getting. A list of employees of both Highcombe Forum Supplies and the engineering firm that they'd sold the paint to were obtained, giving police a list of just over 120 people in total who had access to the paint. Police then began the usual cross-checking of these people and focusing upon those who had a previous history of violent crime, thinking that you don't start off your criminal enterprises by committing two heinous bloody axe murders, 
you kind of build up to that thing with a bit of shoplifting or a few scrapes and scruffles, you know. They were also cross-checked against any of Rylet's friends or acquaintances and customers of both his bookmakers, plus those who had dealings with him in his capacity as a loan shark. A check was also made against anyone who may have known Fred Maltby, but it was deemed more likely that if a hit was coming on one of these employees, it would come from someone who had a discoverable link to Joe Rylet. One of these people, sure enough, did tally against this, and he'd already been questioned earlier in the inquiry. The man's name was Dennis Granville Smalley, a heavily built 47-year-old welder and engineer who worked at the small engineering firm on the Westminster Trading Estate. He knew Joe Rylett and had been a customer of his, and had been questioned in the first initial days of the inquiry into Rylett's death because he was a customer, and at the time police hadn't yet exhausted their routine inquiries. Detectives who'd spoken to Smalley at the time accepted his alibi for the time of the murder that he'd provided, that he was babysitting his three small children at his home in Elizabeth Street in North Highcombe, but they did a note on the questioning response form following the interview that Smalley had seemed extremely uncomfortable under police questioning. Call it intuition, but there was just something about the guy that police weren't happy with. Yet he provided an alibi, so they were forced to move on to the next person on the massive list of people Rylett knew, and who knew him. So now, police had someone who knew the second victim, and who'd been to see him at least three times leading up to the murder. He also worked at the place where the very unique paint was sourced from, and he'd seemed pretty uncomfortable under questioning. Looking pretty promising, eh? But guilty of murder, what would the possible reason be? Discreet checks on Smalley showed the most likely one to be cash. His financial records showed that at the time of the murder, Smalley, a divorced father of three children, was massively in debt. He owed a combination of banks and building societies debts to the tune of more than £28,000. He was borrowing money from all directions, but it was like pissing in the wind, basically, and all the time his financial situation was getting worse and worse. It had got to the stage where he was getting threats of legal action and bailiffs had been round more than once, and desperate for money, he'd finally gone to Joe Rylett. Within days of Rylett's murder, in which £3,700 had been stolen from the scene, Smalley was found to have paid back enough cash to stave off his creditors, just over £3,000 in total. Coincidence? Money tree? Or a good fairy? Or had Smalley actually crossed the line from desperate debtor into sadistic killer, knowing that Rylett was a wealthy man and there may be a large sum of money to be found on the premises? It was a licensed bookies after all, and that was on top of his money lending schemes. And was this what had happened to Fred Maltby? Had Smalley known of Fred and furthermore believed that there was a substantial amount of money hidden in Fred's house? Thinking that Fred was from a generation that didn't trust banks or building societies and preferred to keep his fortune to hand so he knew exactly where it was at all times. Had he then, out of desperation and cowardice for a solution to the problems that he'd created himself, gone to old Fred's place one dark and stormy evening in October and had killed the old man? for nothing, just a few pounds in a wallet. Detective Superintendent Clifton was by now convinced that this was the right man, and he was convinced that this is what had happened. He had the axe, he had a good and viable suspect with a strong motive, he had his paint connection, but he wanted more. Then police received news from none other than Joe Rylett's brother, Bruce Rylett. Making inquiries about Smalley, not only did it so happen that Bruce Rylett knew Smalley, they'd grown up together since school days, but he confirmed that Smalley had had dealings with his brother Joe. Police already knew this from the ledgers in the bookmakers, but the confirmation was always good to have, especially when Bruce volunteered the information that Smalley always cashed his paycheck with Joe Rylett instead of banking it like a person usually would. It was ever more evidence that there'd been financial dealings in the past between them, but there was more information coming from Bruce Rylett that absolutely dispelled any shred of doubt from the minds of Detective Superintendent Clifton and his team 
that Smalley was their man. Bruce Ryler confirmed that as a younger man, Smalley had done some casual part-time work for Fred Maltby during crop-picking seasons. A check with Fred Maltby's elderly sister revealed that yes indeed this was true. Fred had hired many people as part-time workers at these times. When she'd said he'd never employed anyone to work his land, she meant on a full-time basis. Bruce Rylett later said, We grew up together in the same avenue in Lincoln, although Dennis was a couple of years older than me. Fred Maltby, he had a small hold in a farm, and when we was kids we used to go swimming down there, down the river where his land would back up to. Some of the kids, smallly included, knew Maltby because they used to probably go shooting on his land, or they used to do work like potato picking. And also growing up, Smalley had lived in a house that overlooked the lake in Bolton Park. So Smalley, he worked at a place that had a very large supply of the very unique paint, very unique, that covered the head of the undisputed murder weapon. He was the only person who could be linked to both of the victims as knowing them, and there was an easily provable motive in that he had a desperate need for ready cash to stave off financial ruin. He was so skinned that he couldn't even pay attention. He was also very familiar with the area where the murder weapon was found. He was the prime suspect and if I was a betting man I'd be tempted to chuck a month's wages on his guilt. But Clifton wanted his man absolutely nailed down, no wriggling free. And the problem that he feared would come to bite the team on the arse if the case went to court was that there was no forensic evidence tying Smalley to the scenes available. There were no unaccountable fingerprints or footprints had been found at the scene of Fred Maltby's murder, whereas even if Smalley's fingerprints were found at the scene of Joe Rylett's killing, these could be easily explained away quite legitimately. There were no witnesses to either crime, and no one had been spotted fleeing from the scene of either murder, and there was no way Smalley could be linked to the murder weapon in such a way that a jury would have no room for reasonable doubt. The evidence was good and strong, but it was circumstantial. So Clifton put his team back to work, scrutinising everything there was to know about Dennis Smalley, and their focus began in the suburb of Elizabeth Avenue in North Highcombe, where Smalley lived. Perhaps they'd get a further result. And they came up with an absolute result. Smalley, who was divorced, wasn't too popular with his neighbours, and one of these who lived opposite, Diane May, especially didn't like him. It wasn't just that she'd taken an instant dislike and was picking on him, it stemmed from the fact that she'd noticed over time that whenever Smalley had custody of his young children, she'd noticed he would often go out late at night, not returning to the early hours, with his three small children left alone in the house at this time. Being a bit of a concerned and interested neighbour, shall we say. Diane had begun to fear that the children were suffering neglect or even possibly abuse, but rather than confront Smalley outright with what may of course have turned out to have been unfounded allegations, Diane had instead begun keeping a log of his movements to gather enough to perhaps do this at a later time, or to be able to report him to local authorities. She'd been compiling this log of his coming and goings for a number of months, ever since the start of 1992. When Smalley had been interviewed because his name had been found in the ledgers at Joe Rylett's bookmakers showing that he'd visited on several occasions, his alibi was that he'd been in all of the evening of Tuesday the 28th of January because he was babysitting his children. Now as we said, this had been accepted at the time, although it had been noted that Smalley appeared decidedly uncomfortable under police questioning. During discreet house-to-house inquiries with residents of Elizabeth Avenue, where Smalley lived, a chat with his neighbour Diane May told Detective Superintendent Clifton's team a likely reason why he'd been uncomfortable. She told them quite openly her concerns about Dennis Smalley and the log that she'd been keeping because of these, and was only too happy to show police the full log, particularly that of the evening of Tuesday the 28th of January 1992. The night Joe Rylett was murdered, Diane had noticed Smalley leave the house at 8.10pm, drive off in his car, and had not returned home until 9.50pm. 
nearly an hour and three quarters later. She had the exact timings noted. This information was absolutely crucial. Police could now place Smalley in a lie over his whereabouts on the night of Joe Rylott's murder with the information from a reliable independent witness. Following a discussion with the Crown Prosecution Service based upon the evidence that police had amassed, Detective Superintendent Clifton was given the go-ahead to make the arrest. Early in the morning of 7th of January 1993, as he was getting ready to go to work, a team of police officers arrived on the doorstep of Dennis Smalley and arrested him on suspicion of the murders of Fred Maltby and Joe Rylott. He was then taken to the murder incident room at Lincoln's West Parade Police Station for questioning. Smalley denied from the start having anything to do with the murders and claimed at first that he'd borrowed the money that he'd managed to pay back to stave off his creditors from his in-laws. Then the story changed to that he'd managed to save up enough money to pay them to keep the wolf from the door. Police didn't believe this load of cock and balls in the slightest. I mean, this was a person who was desperately broke. How could someone in such a situation manage to save up that much money? Meanwhile, as Smalley was being questioned, officers were beginning a systematic examination of his house and car, seizing clothes from his wardrobe for forensic examination, and making a thorough search of the house, the garden, and the shed. And it was in the shed that police found an important discovery. On a shelf inside, there were three cans of grey primer spray paint taken from the factory where Smalley worked. A paint that was a unique mix of reconstituted zinc and epoxy ester D4. An exact match with the material from the axe head. The final piece that police needed for their case against Smalley came from a forensic consultant, Dr. Roger Simons, who developed a technique of photographing weapons and wound patterns. This involved any item that was suspected to have made marks left at a crime scene being photographed at a series of angles and a similar distance within a millimetre of the impressions recorded by official police crime scene photographs. Comparison can then be made to ascertain the validity of the item being the said one to have left the marks. So in this case, life-size overlay impressions were made of the axe head impression left on the cushion at Fred Maltby's and an impression that was taken from the axe that had been found on the island from the exact same height and angle. This was then superimposed over the former within a millimetre of accuracy to highlight any similarities or discrepancies. The case was the first time this technique had been used in an active murder investigation before, and after a comparison of the head of the axe was made, with the imprint of the axe head that had been found upon the cushion in Fred Maltby's living room using this technique, the examining experts were able to say that based on their findings, in their professional scientific opinion, that axe was the very same one that had made the impression on the cushion. The very same one, unquestionably. It was already confirmed to be the axe that had killed Joe Rylott. Now they had the opinion of forensic scientists that the same weapon was the one that had killed Fred Maltby. Taking this into conjunction with the axe head matching the grooves in the chopping block at Fred Maltby's, plus his own axe missing, and it added up to very powerful evidence. It was good for police, but devastating for Smalley. He was charged that same day with the murders of Fred Maltby and Joe Rylott. Smalley's trial for the murders of Fred Maltby and Joe Rylott began at Lincoln Crown Court in June 1994, where he pleaded not guilty to both charges and made an impassioned plea of his innocence to the jury, saying, I did not kill Joe Rylott, I regarded him as a friend. When I heard he was dead, I broke down in tears. But the pathetic defence that he put up was destroyed shred by shred when the jury heard testimony of each step of the remarkable detection that had traced the paint taken from the wounds of Joe Rylott. The testimony that had proved the weapon beyond reasonable doubt had killed both Joe and Fred, the strong motive that Smalley had for murder, plus all of the circumstantial evidence suggesting Smalley's guilt, from the eyewitness testimony of Diane May, right through to the fact that Smalley had worked for Fred Maltby as a younger man. On the 5th of July 1994, 
the jury returned a unanimous verdict of guilty to both counts of murder, and Dennis Smalley was jailed for life with a minimum recommended sentence to serve of no less than 20 years. Following the verdict, Detective Superintendent Clifton praised the guilty verdict and his team, saying, On TV, the screen detective is often shown solving the case by uncovering some tiny scientific clue that leads right to the door of the killer. In reality, that's exceptionally rare, but in the case of the Lincoln Axe murders, that is really what happened. After Fred Maltby was killed, we reached the point, sadly, where we could get no further. When the second axe murder happened, we had more avenues to go down, but we were ultimately getting nowhere. We had no choice but to pursue even the smallest of clues. Very few thought that that tiny fragment of paint would lead us eventually to our killer. We all expected the trail to peter out, but each step then led to another, and eventually it took us to our killer. Dennis Smalley'd served just 11 years of his life sentence before collapsing in his cell after an asthma attack coupled with heart problems. He was pronounced dead shortly afterwards in 2005. Why did Smalley turn to murder? Desperation, probably. Through research, there's no record of Smalley having any previous criminal convictions, although it's of course possible and I just may not have been able to find anything. Smalley had been involved in a serious car crash in 1987 that had left him unable to work for nine months, and it was over this period of unemployment, and he wasn't earning, that he began borrowing money from anyone he came across. If there was a chance that you had a few quid, he'd be there asking for a lend. What exactly all his money went on, however, is unclear, but in the space of four years, his debts had worsened and racked up to the tune of near £28,000 in total. It got to the stage that when Smalley got paid from his work as a welder, his paycheck was sinking into the overdraft and he spent more time in the red than a London bus painter. By the end of 1991, Smalley had begun to think about another source of quick cash and he remembered Fred Maltby, who he'd worked for periodically as a boy. He knew Fred's house and grounds, and he suspected that Fred had a ready source of cash in his home. Why he killed Fred so savagely will never be known. Fred was an elderly man, and he could have been easily overpowered by the powerful Smalley, with little resistance really. Perhaps Fred had caught him in the process of a burglary and recognised him, and so needed to be killed. The pointless murder netted Smalley nothing except a few pounds, and by early in 1992, more desperate than ever for cash, he turned once again to Joe Rylett for a loan, as he'd done many times in the past. Smalley had even borrowed money from Joe Rylett to pay for his wedding some years before. The amount was most likely a few hundred quid here and there. According to Joe's son, he wouldn't likely borrow much bigger sums than this out but nor was he on the ball about chasing it up too urgently either. But Smalley was, of course, unable to make any payments back, so he wasn't eager to go out of his way to repay Joe, and Ryler had finally had enough when not a single repayment had been made. In the last meeting that the two had had, which was actually the day before Joe was murdered, they'd been seen to have a heated argument about these repayments, and the fact that the debt was now well past due. This argument was enough to make Smalley kill for a second time, and it likely wouldn't have stopped at this murder. More money would have been ultimately needed, and by that time, Smalley might have been comfortable in his role as a killer. I mean, he'd already done it twice, after all. Rather than face up to his problems, because loads of people are in much worse situations, and they choose a lawful, sensible route out, perhaps bankruptcy or an IVA, Smalley instead chose a quicker, much more destructive and horrific, and ultimately non-lucrative solution. Who would he have chosen next? And he may never have been caught had he not decided to dispose of the now double murder weapon in Bolton Lake, but misjudged the throw of the axe, landing it onto the island instead of in the water. Unlucky dickhead. I hope that you found this bonus episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast an interesting one. It's a good one that highlights just how a case can unravel from the tiniest evidence. Literally, in this case, 
invisible to the naked eye paint specks. And do you think Smalley was a thoroughly evil and ruthless man, or one who was driven to it out of desperation? I can see overlapping circles for both of these aspects there. Please feel free to leave any thoughts, feedback or discussions that you'd like to about Smalley's crimes on the episode thread, exclusive for you very kind supporters only. Unless, of course, it's the voted for Patreon episode that I make available for all as a birthday gift on the podcast's birthday, but that isn't until September and there are a fair few episodes to come before then. Thanks again all for your very kind support and I look forward to you all joining me for the next bonus Patreon episode of the show. The regular True Crime Enthusiast podcast will be back in a couple of days. The back catalogue of regular episodes are all still available of course wherever you get your podcasts from if there are any that you're still missing and I'll be back with some fresh enthusiast in just a few short days. All that remains is for me to say that this is Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast, wishing you guys all good and safe times and I'll catch you very soon. Take care all, thanks very much for joining me and goodbye for now.